Good Friday afternoon. This is Ozarks at Large for October 8th, 2021 on your public radio station, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. This hour, we find out how the Food Conservancy is working to better connect local small and mid-sized farms to schools and hospitals. And just ahead, how a clinical trial, with the help of unvaccinated people, might help eventually in the fight to slow coronavirus spread. Matthew Moore has that story in just a few minutes. There are 893 newly diagnosed cases of COVID-19 in the latest report from the Arkansas Department of Health, pushing the total number of cases in Arkansas since the start of the pandemic to more than 500,000. The ADH counts another 21 deaths from the virus and reductions in both hospitalizations from the disease by 31 patients and in active cases by 189. The Arkansas legislature is giving final approval to a redrawn map of the state's four congressional districts that splits Pulaski County among three districts and Sebastian County among two. Governor Asa Hutchinson has not said if he'll sign the bill. With little debate, members of the state House and Senate yesterday passed identical versions of the bill proposed by Republicans Jane English of North Little Rock and Nelda Speaks of Mountain Home. The map would trisect Pulaski County among the first, second, and fourth congressional districts. While Arkansas lawmakers have given final approval to a redrawn map of the state's four congressional districts, the legislative session focused on redistricting is being extended one more day. Leadership in the state House and Senate have agreed to convene again today to vote on Senate Bill 731, sponsored by Republican Senator Bob Ballinger of Berryville. The bill would allow employees who are retaliated against for not disclosing their COVID-19 vaccination status to seek restitution paid for with money from the American Rescue Plan. Senator Ballinger defended his bill yesterday while speaking on the Senate floor. When this bill becomes law in January, when those people go back to their job and they apply for their job back because they got canned because they didn't want to get a vaccination, those employers best not even ask them about the vaccination status because if they do and they don't hire them, they've retaliated against them and they'll be sued. Just like a lot of other rights we protect, just like a lot of other things, we're going to say there's a God-given and able right to decide to reveal that information for yourself or not. The proposal was approved late Thursday afternoon by the House Public Health, Welfare and Labor Committee and now is being voted on by the full House. Earlier yesterday, lawmakers gave final approval to a bill that would allow workers to opt out of vaccine mandates imposed by employers. The bills are in response to new federal vaccination requirements for government workers and companies with more than 100 employees. Ozark Regional Transit is issuing a call for artists. ORT, in collaboration with artist Octavio Logo and Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, seeking local artists to create an original artwork celebrating the importance of public transportation. A press release from ORT says artists will be compensated for the work. More information available at crystalbridges.org. The Encyclopedia of Arkansas is receiving a grant of $82,000 from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The website, with about 6,700 entries, is part of the Central Arkansas Library System. A press release says the money will go toward paying stipends to contributors, help cover the salary of the encyclopedia's historian, and be used to make the website more functional. The Encyclopedia of Arkansas celebrated its 15th anniversary earlier this year. And make it 10 consecutive victories for Razorback soccer. Arkansas ranked 7th in the country, defeated Alabama last night 3-1. It was also the 100th SEC win for the program. Arkansas will now be at Vanderbilt Sunday afternoon.
This is Ozarks at Large with me. From his office in Fort Smith is Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics. Michael, good to talk to you. Well, good to talk to you again. It's always, uh, I always appreciate you having me back. Well, first of all, let's talk about building permits for the Fort Smith Metro. We talked about them last year when the pandemic was in its first year, and I, at least, was surprised that it was a record year. I guess I'm surprised again in 2021? Yeah, you might be surprised in 2021 through September, and we measure Fort Smith, Greenwood, and Van Buren, the three largest cities in the metro area. And through uh, September, business, the building permit values total almost $265 million, which is up 9.5% from the same period uh, in, in um, 2021. So... Um, or excuse me, 9.4% higher. And uh, remember in 2020, let me back up, let me back up. The, the permits are $248 million, um, 9.4% higher than this time last year. Last year, they ended at $265 million, which is up 9.5% over 2019. So it looks like we're going to have two back-to-back years for record building permits in the Fort Smith metro area during a pandemic. Um, just like I would have never guessed the hogs are going to be Texas and Texas A&M. I would have never guessed two years of record permitting activity. Uh, and, and look, we're going to see more, you know, ERC holdings just announced several new residential developments that will have, you know, over a hundred million dollar, uh, economic impact when they're completed, um, and that's uh, residential construction. Um, so, uh, and we're still seeing construction going on in, with manufacturing facilities, with Mars, um, right? Uh, uh, Owens Corning, uh, Hytrol, uh, and some other operations. So, this is going to be going out. September was a dip for the three cities. Um, uh, it was down uh, f- almost 45% from September 2020. I hope that's – I don't think it's um, kind of a harbinger of what's to come in the, the, the last quarter. Although typ- typically the last quarter of the year, you do see somewhat of a slowdown in permit activity because of the holidays. Um, not a lot of work is getting done or being scheduled to be done, but um, – if the pace continues, uh, it, it will be another record for permitting activity in the region, which, look, and I, we've talked before, that creates an upstream-downstream supply in terms of keeping people employed. Right. Because uh, somebody's, you know, somebody's got to move that sheetrock and get those nails unloaded and, you know, those um, electricians and plumbers, they go eat at lunch at, you know, restaurants. So, I mean, it's, there's any number of impacts that has on the economy. All right, so you use the analogy that you're surprised by back-to-back record years, just like you were surprised that Arkansas beat both Texas and Texas A&M this year. So I'm going to extend this analogy a little bit. Is there anything on the horizon that indicates there could be a Georgia coming up as far as this economic? Um... Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, if Congress doesn't get its act together on the debt cliff, um, which I, I think they will, I mean, they could throw – the credit markets in disarray, which boost interest rates, which uh, if you want to shut down construction, just boost interest rates. That'll that'll do that pretty quickly. All right. 
Here's something that hasn't happened very quickly. It's a story that's evolved over a year and a half. And then I'm going to ask you to help guide me through this. There were flags that were up uh, at, at Riverfront Park. These flags came down. They included, I think, some that, that hearkened to the Confederacy. A lawsuit was filed. Well, was con- yeah. oh, go ahead. It was the Confederate battle flag. Yeah, oh, stars well, and bars. Okay. Well, yes, doesn't hearken to, uh, is yeah. firmly <laughs> entrenched in. So yes. the, the flags went down. Joey McCutcheon uh, filed suit. Now Judge Gunnar DeLay has said that the city was couldn't take them down because there's a waiver because of legislation passed. Okay, I've gotten confused. Help me out. Yeah, this is um, – I told somebody earlier, this is almost somebody's writing a Monty Python skit for the city of Fort Smith, except maybe it's not funny in the long run, but – Right. This flag display was removed and attorney Joey McCutcheon, who is um, uh, he is against, you know, for example, critical race theory. He uh, is very much against removal of statues um, that, as you noted, harken back to the Confederacy. He's been pretty active on Facebook to note his opposition to that. And so um when the city took the flags down, the city took the flags down. Carl Gefkin, city administrator, took them down, and his reasoning was that um, you know they needed repair. The, the 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 display of the flags needed to be cleaned up, um, and that they even thought when they took them down that instead of putting these flags and these flags, by the way, were to mark. Uh, all of the countries, all of the governments that had been mm. over Fort Smith at one time. So you had Spanish, French, um, and the Confederate flag, obviously the American flag. Um, and so that's what the flag display noted. And so the city of Fort Smith said, we're going to take them down. Uh, you know, I think there was kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're going to take it down because one of them's a Confederate flag. But um, they took him down. Then in the interim, I think the Arkansas legislature earlier this year you know, passed the Historical Monument Protection Act, which um, was you know, the, the predominant, predominantly Republican legislative move to ensure that um, statute removal that they're seeing in other areas of the country didn't happen here. I mean, they want to make sure that um, those monuments uh, put up by uh, white folks in the late 19th century and the early 20th century to remind minorities who where their place was that nothing, you know, we didn't touch those because we have to learn from those apparently somehow. So they passed this Historical Monument Protection Act, which means you have to get a waiver from the Arkansas Historic Commission if you want to tinker with the monument, although the flag display was removed before this act was put in place. But, but Sebastian County Circuit Judge Gunnar DeLay ruled October 4th that the city had to was in violation of this act, even though it removed the flags before the act was in place, because it hadn't sought a waiver. Well, the problem is there is no waiver process in place yet. In so the state? reminds me I have. Not in the state. Yeah, by the okay. state. So the judge is essentially telling the city it's in violation of not <laughs> seeking a waiver for which there is no waiver yet to be sought. It's kind of like I had a high school friend, his father 
used to say, you know, if we had any bacon, we'd have bacon and eggs. If we had any eggs, <laughs> right. and so there's nothing there's nothing there to get. So, um, but anyway, and we ask uh, the judge, did you not know that there was not a waiver in place? Thinking he probably did because that was in the filing that the city made to say why you shouldn't grant uh, or you shouldn't uh, rule against us in this. And Judge DeLay said he hadn't heard of that. It hadn't been brought to him before, which is very confusing because it was in the filing. So that's probably something we're going to follow up down the road. But uh, Carl Gafkin, again, the city administrator, said, well, all of this just delays us putting back what they want, what the city of Fort Smith wants to put back, our flags representing all the branches of the military. Um, and uh, so Carl City Administrator Gefkin is saying, well, this judgment now by uh, Judge DeLay just delays that. The process of having to get a waiver delays that. So we'll see what happens. I think what McCutcheon wants is he wants the Arkansas Historic Commission to reject the waiver and to tell the city of Fort Smith they have to put all of those flags back, including the Confederate battle flag, up. Okay, if you're the, so, uh, if you're the city of Fort Smith and you just say, no, we don't want to put the Confederate battle flag back up over our city, I mean, what's what would be the next step? Would, some, would they be forced to? Would there be a suit that makes them come well, out? And well, I think this— I think the city's going to argue this is not a monument. It's yeah. a flag display, and which I would think would be a good case. Um, because if you read the, the law, it really is not it, – it's, it's not clear. There's um, – it's not clear. I mean because if, if that flag display is a monument, there is hardly any flag dis- – I mean flag display in Arkansas that you could touch without having to get a historic commission – uh, Arkansas Historic Commission waiver, which would seem to be very cumbersome um, and might even bottleneck that small commission. But um, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because I think the city of Fort Smith is clearly does not want to put a Confederate battle flag up over a riverfront park that hmm. um, is heavily used. You've got the amphitheater on one side and skate park on another part, another side. Um, and I think that we've learned now that that, that flag is not, um, for all the correct reasons is not uh, the best, the best place to display that flag is in a museum explaining why that flag is not to be displayed in public. If that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, gosh, obviously this is not over. No, but it's been interesting to watch. (laughs) All right. Michael Tilley is with talk business and politics. Uh, going to give me a production prediction on the Razorbacks and the, hmm, here we go. The Mississippi rebels. Uh, for this I, I've been so wrong too. I've been so wrong two weeks in a row. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to go there now. You're a wise so, man. All right. Well, Michael, I'm just ready to be, I hope we beat Joey Freshwater though. That's all I want to do. <laughs> Michael Tilly is with talk business and politics. We'll talk again next week. How's that? That'll work. Thank you, sir. On last week's Wait, Wait, Josh Gondelman talked about the most expensive private home ever built in America. Every place has a bedroom and a bathroom. This is the only house I've ever heard of that actually has a beyond room. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Head to your dedicated radio listening suite and join us for this week's Wait, Wait with special guest Alana Glazer. That's the news quiz from NPR.
Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me tomorrow morning at 9 and then Sunday evening at 7 on KUAF. You can also listen live when you stream on the KUAF app or at KUAF.com. With me from her home in Fayetteville via Zoom is Rhonda Dillard, who is our underwriting director at KUAF. Happy Friday, Rhonda. Happy Friday. Don't these weeks just blow by? It seems like it's either Monday or Friday. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Monday I agree. Or Friday. <laughs> I agree. Poor Tuesday. You never even know it's Tuesday. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, we we started this by saying Happy Friday. We're going to make somebody even happier on this Friday because it is time to give away tickets to Melissa Etheridge, who will be at the Walton Art Center. She will be at the Walton Art Center, and that is this Sunday. Woo. So it's just a, a couple days away. Uh, yeah, we've got two tickets, uh, courtesy of the Walton Art Center. We thank them so much for participating and, uh, and I hope we make someone really happy. You know, I saw an interview with her the other day about this newest release of music, which will be a part of this concert talked about, she went back through all of her old, uh, writings and she is all of these songs that she has put together on this new music, uh, are things that she wrote in her twenties and thirties. And it was back to her real roots. Mm. And so she pulled together the band that she had back oh, in wow. 1988 to produce this new record. So it's really a big swing back for her. And I listened to part of it the other day. It's really terrific. All right. Well, um, I've liked her since I've known about her, which I feels like a few decades now. Uh, probably about 30 years. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I'm Maybe excited. I'm excited for her to yeah. be here. Yes, we, we are indeed. So, uh, and the winner is Abai Mosier from Fayetteville. Oh. Abai, congratulations. You were randomly chosen by the computer. And is this two tickets? I forget. It, it is. It is two right. tickets. So, you know, everybody get close to your buddy there and <laughs> see who wins out. <laughs> this is why you listen to Ozarks at Large on these giveaway days, because you want to be the first one to know that your pal has this extra ticket. <laughs> that is so true. Make the call right now. Uh, yeah. That's fantastic. So you'll be in touch. This is Sunday night at Walton Art Center. And I know we'll have more giveaways, so stay tuned. We do. We have some just around the corner, just waiting on uh, approval from the uh, the folks who do the approving. <laughs> well, you can't get approval without the folks who do the approving. We understand that. <laughs> That's right. The produce, the promoter. We're waiting on approval from the promoters. The so office of once we have that, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll move forward. All right. Well, Rhonda Dillard will be talking with the office of people who approve things between now and sometime. She will be back to give away some tickets. <laughs> Rhonda, have a great weekend. Thank you, Kyle. You too. Rhonda Dillard is our underwriting director at KUAF. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Northwest Arkansas Tech Summit is October 17th through the 20th at Record Downtown in Bentonville. Virtual and in-person attendance options are available. Presenters include Jerry Geisler of Walmart and Keith Mercier from Microsoft. The Tech Summit is committed to inclusivity. Complimentary access for educators, students, and entrepreneurs is available. NWATechSummit.com for tickets and more. Happy Friday. This is Ozarks at Large. Governor Asa Hutchinson and the Arkansas Department of Health have noted the uptick we've seen in vaccinations in Arkansas recently been fueled by people receiving their Pfizer boosters more so than first-time vaccines. One clinic in Fayetteville is trying to encourage people who haven't been vaccinated yet 
to sign up for a paid drug study hoping to prevent COVID. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore reports. If you've driven down North Street in Fayetteville, odds are you've seen the sandwich board sign touting a paid COVID prevention drug study. That sign stands just outside the Karis Healthcare Clinic. If that name sounds familiar, it's probably because you've seen the news coverage of Dr. Rob Karras, who was prescribing ivermectin as a COVID-19 treatment to detainees in the Washington County Detention Center in Fayetteville. As a reminder, ivermectin has not been approved by the FDA to treat COVID-19. But according to Jessica Beebe, the clinical research coordinator at Karis Healthcare, this has nothing to do with ivermectin. So what we're doing is a clinical trial through Adagio Therapeutics um, called the Evade Study. It's a monoclonal antibody called ADG20. It's been modified to last a year in the body, and so it's being researched as a preventative method for COVID. Monoclonal antibodies as a treatment for COVID-19 are not new. Former President Trump was treated with them when he tested positive for the disease in November of 2020. Today, they are being promoted by health officials as an effective treatment once you've tested positive for COVID. But, as BB says, this clinical trial is to test if monoclonal antibodies are effective as a preventative measure. Now, maybe you're like me. You hear the same medical jargon enough that you think, oh, sure, monoclonal antibodies. I know exactly what that is, but truthfully, you don't really know what that is. At least I know I didn't. And that's okay. Dr. Pete Schmidt is in charge of clinical development at Adagio Therapeutics, and he explains it for us. When you get infected with any virus, your, your body mounts um, an antibody response as, as part of the defense. That response includes a lot of different kinds of antibodies called polyclonal antibodies. It's kind of like your body is throwing the kitchen sink at the virus to do anything it can to prevent you from getting infected. What a monoclonal antibody is, is uh, taking the most potent of those antibodies, meaning the, uh, the one that binds most tightly at, a, at the lowest concentration, and uh, one that has very high neutralization potential, meaning that at lower concentrations, it fully binds up the virus. So sorting out that one antibody and then modifying it to make it more potent, to make it uh, last longer in the body, and to make it neutralize better. It also turns out monoclonal antibody is a generic term. Not all monoclonal antibodies are the exact same antibody. President Trump received a monoclonal antibody treatment from a pharmaceutical company called Regeneron, who have their own specific brand, if you will, of antibodies. Adagio Therapeutics does too, called ADG20. And what Dr. Schmidt and his research team are working on right now is to see if an injection of ADG20 is effective as a preventative measure against COVID-19. He says, when you think about a natural infection from the disease... Your body mounts that antibody response to, to clear the, the virus um, to keep you from getting severely ill, hopefully. But those cells that produce those antibodies, they maintain memory. They're called memory B cells. Um, and when you see that antigen again, 
the, the virus, the particles from the virus. Your body reactivates those cells, recreates the antibodies, and blocks you, hopefully, from ever getting sick again. The idea is that receiving an injection of ADG20 before you ever get COVID-19, that if you do come in contact with SARS-CoV-2, those memory cells will remember that they've seen this before, and it will prevent you from getting sick. But isn't that what a vaccine does? It's close, but not exactly, according to Dr. Schmidt. We classify those two different uh, types of protection as active and passive protection. A vaccine is active protection that requires your immune system to produce those antibodies. Those antibodies being produced by your immune system are those polyclonal antibodies, the kitchen sink. The issue with that is there are folks whose immune system is so compromised that the vaccine doesn't put the kitchen sink to work. Or they're missing their kitchen altogether. You get the idea. You have to have a healthy, robust immune system to mount that immune response to create those protective antibodies. And so what ADG20 does is it's passive. It replaces those antibodies. It gives you those antibodies circulating in your blood without your immune system having to participate at all. So now that we better understand what ADG20 is and why it's being considered for clinical trial in this fashion, we come back to the sandwich board sign in Fayetteville. Dr. Schmidt says one of the reasons that Kara's Healthcare was a good candidate for this clinical trial was because of their relationship with the Washington County Detention Center. We want people enrolled who are at high risk of COVID-19 or high risk of being exposed to SARS-CoV-2 and those who work in a prison system are are a great example. To qualify for this trial, you cannot have tested positive for COVID-19 and you cannot have had any of the vaccine varieties either. Dr. Schmidt says a vetting process happens with each local clinic they partner with and he knew about Dr. Karras' belief that ivermectin is an effective treatment against COVID-19. Dr. Schmidt says the data from large randomized control tests have not yet shown that to be the case. However, Dr. Schmidt says that didn't change his mind about working with the clinic. There's a distinct difference between somebody prescribing a, an approved medication for off-label purposes, which is the, um, the case with ivermectin, and conducting a good randomized placebo-controlled trial. Um, and so I think that those two are not mutually exclusive. You know, a physician can certainly have uh, his or her own beliefs on what, what they have found to be effective or what they have perceived to be effective and also still be a fantastic researcher. As mentioned, one of the controls for this clinical trial is not having had any of the vaccines. Another element of the trial is prohibited medications for participants. Some medications that a participant can't be on and still enroll in the trial. And one of those would be ivermectin. So if somebody came in and said, hey, you know, I really want ivermectin, then the doctor may prescribe that, but they wouldn't be eligible for the trial. So we have a couple different checks there to make sure that 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 population is as clean as possible. Jessica Beebe of Cares Healthcare says they've seen success with using monoclonal antibodies after a positive COVID test. And she's excited to be involved with this trial. I think it's important that, you know, every scientific outlet, every technology that we already are utilizing, you know, be researched to, you know, help, help end the pandemic, you know. 
For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Matthew Moore is not just a reporter for Ozarks at Large. He's also the producer of the podcast Undisciplined, created in collaboration between KUAF and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. The fourth episode featuring host Free Batten can be heard right now. You can download Undisciplined, the latest episode, the previous three, at any major podcast distributor. New episodes of Undisciplined can be heard every other Wednesday. Speaking of podcasts, there's an Ozarks at Large podcast, so you can listen to the daily version of our show at any time, anywhere. Like Undisciplined, it's free. All you have to do is go to your favorite podcast distributor and sign up for the subscription to the Ozarks at Large podcast. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm so happy because on the phone with me right now from her Bella Vista Bureau is Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Welcome back, Becca. Morning, Sunshine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) I'm fine. I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite parts of my week. I love you. I love our listeners. And I love getting to tell them what they can do this weekend. So here's your question for the day. What did two astronauts, an artist, an author, a journalist, a classically trained vocalist, a chef, a historian, a medical doctor, a storyteller, an award-winning flutist, and a renowned lecturer on climate change all have in common? They're all going to do stuff associated with the Museum of Native American History? You are correct. You get a prize. Oh, good. The prize is that you can go online and go to the 5th Annual Native American Cultural Celebration at the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville. And the theme this year that includes all those speakers is Indigenuity, Building a Bridge to the Future. Charlotte Buchanan-Yale, who is the director, loves the term Indigenuity. And she credits Daniel Wildcat, who is a professor of environmental studies at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas, for coining the word which she defines as a movement to bring the best of the indigenous people's ancient wisdom to bear on modern problems. And we have some modern problems. Daniel Wildcat, who is a fun, fun interview, great guy, says, you know, people think of Native Americans, indigenous people, as something that's in the past. And his first best advice is, Get out of your box. Literally get outside the box, because we spend all our time in centrally heated and cooled boxes. This is true. And we use smaller heated and cooled boxes to travel between the big ones. So he says that you can't care about what happens to the aquifers if you only think water comes out of a tap. So you can go and hear all of this today and tomorrow go to Mona, M-O-N-A-H dot U-S, and it will direct you, or you can find the event on Facebook Live all day today and tomorrow, and it's free. Designing Women is continuing at Theater Squared, and Love's Labor's Lost is continuing. It's the first show back for University Theater since the pandemic at 7.30 today, tomorrow, and Sunday, 
and it's in the mini Greek amphitheater there at the Fine Arts Center on campus. Tomorrow, <laughs> I love this. This is so Northwest Arkansas. Could it be two events further apart? One is a mule jump. Oh, in Pea Ridge. And one is an event called Sun and Sea at the Momentary. The mule jump is pretty self-explanatory. Hunters used mules over the years to go raccoon hunting. Mm-hmm. Well, happily, they, they're not hunting the raccoons. They're just doing the jumping. You could take a mule up to a fence or a barrier, and it will jump flat-footed over that barrier. Now, this competition you're talking about, which takes place in Pea Ridge, it's billed as the World Championship Mule Jump. Here's the thing, though. You can only coax the mule with your voice. You know, you can't pull the mule over. The mule's got to decide on its own to jump. It starts at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, just north of Pea Ridge City Hall on Weston Street. And then the professional mule jump is at 1 o'clock. And it's $5 for adults and $2 for children to get in. It's a lot of fun. Or you can go to the Momentary in Bentonville, where there is a contemporary opera sung in English with the singing performers lounging on a sandy beach while the audience views from above. It's described as part art installation, part opera, part theater, all coming together to be performance art with 25 tons of sand. Half-hour performances start at 2, and tomorrow is the last day for this. Tickets are 16 to $20 at themomentary.org. Also tomorrow, there is a quilt show from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. at the Rogers Convention Center, hosted by the Quilt Guild of Northwest Arkansas. The Arkansas Festival happens from 11.30 to 5 at Shiloh Square in downtown Springdale. Music, dance, a parade, food, salsa. It's got everything. Yeah. Sean Fitzgibbon is talking about his upcoming graphic novel about the Crescent Hotel Right. at 2 o'clock tomorrow at the Fayetteville Public Library. And there's an open house with pets for adoption from 4 to 7 p.m. and a screening of the champions at 7 p.m. at the new Best Friends Life Saving Center in Bentonville. Sunday, you can go to Rogers, actually past Rogers, go to Hobbs State Park, and see these super cool models that Mike Kearney made of the Van Winkle Mill and the Van Winkle School. When you say models, how big are they? They are floor models. They're probably as tall as I am. He says it took him 557 hours to make the Van Winkle Mill and another 311 hours to make the Van Winkle School out of popsicle sticks, craft glue, and a steak knife. And Hobbs is open 8 to 5 tomorrow. And there's also a half-mile historic trail that takes you to the Van Winkle site where the mill was. If you're in the southern end of our listening area, I am in love with this exhibit. It's at the Fort Smith Regional Art Museum. Speaking of models. It's by a hot springs artist named David Malcolm Rose. And it's those buildings that were left abandoned when the interstates became the way to travel. And he's made these models, 12 of them. And the colors and the way, it's like if you could shrink yourself, you could walk into these forgotten places. 
and he calls the exhibit The Lost Highway. And it's at Fort Smith Regional Art Museum through January 30th. Hours are 1 to 5 on Sunday, and it's free. Or you can go to the Fall Music on the Mountain series at Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville for Larry Mitchell tonight and Tim Erickson tomorrow night, or The Juice tonight and Willie Carlisle tomorrow night at Railroad Live in Rogers. Yeah, plenty of opportunities. <laughs> and you can sign up for a newsletter that will send you all this in print if you'd like to have it. Go to the nwadg.com page and look for newsletters. Beckham I can babble at you in print. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Becca, thanks. Talk to you next Friday. See you then. This week on Science Friday, a COVID update, including Merck's new anti-COVID pill. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the drug. Plus the history of air conditioning. This was the first time in human history that the average person for the price of a movie ticket could go somewhere and become cool. On the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday begins at 1 o'clock this afternoon, right after this Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. The Food Conservancy has had an office in Springdale for a couple of years now. The 501c3 nonprofit's mission is to provide a place for small and mid-sized farms in northwest Arkansas to be able to aggregate and distribute their produce. The Food Conservancy is launching a new collective project to help small farms work together to gain certification to be able to provide produce to schools, hospitals, and other possible sources. This week, we called Diana Endicott, director of the Food Conservancy, to find out how the organization is helping farms here receive a Group Good Agricultural Practices Certification, or a Group GAP. And it is a USDA program, so it's a USDA-administered program for small and mid-sized farms. It is a volunteer program. Um, the program is a audit process. It's a certification audit that allows the farmers to be able to verify that they are following certain guidelines and processes and procedures to help ensure that the food that they are selling is is safe. And and so if a small farm, a smaller mid-sized farm completes this certification, which a few have already, what does that, that the food's determined safe, that allows them to, what, sell to schools and entities such as that? Yes, sir. It allows the certification opens up new markets. So it allows them to be able to sell to, you know, institutions, be able to sell to some, uh, you know, grocery stores. Uh, it just allows them a, a different, you know, an elevated uh, le- way to be able to sell their food. Um, basically just opens up new markets for them. What do you have to do if you're one of those farms to, to get that GAP certification? Well, here, GAP certification can be done two ways. The, the original GAP certification is just an independent audit on your farm. So you fill out a form, an auditor comes, you have a list, a checkoff list of things that you have to implement, and they come and they audit you. Group GAP is a program that the USDA implemented to try and increase the number of small, small and mid-sized farms. And the reason for that is because of the cost of this, you know, of the audit, the certification process. And by, you know, creating efficiencies of scale by farms joining, farmers joining together um, in, a, in a geographical area, then they're able to have a group gap. 
And so some of the benefits of that is they can, you have a lot of peer learning, you can share resources. Um, it just gives you a, a collective share of risk, you know, share equipment, but it allows the main purpose of it is to be able to organize as a group so that you can help build more efficiencies in cost. So for example, you, instead of you have an internal auditor and that internal auditor say you have, let's say you have 20 farms, you have an internal auditor that will audit the farms under a quality management system that they create. And then the, the federal auditor or state auditor will come in and, and audit a percentage of those farms to make sure that they're meeting the requirements. So it's a program to hopefully reduce the cost of, of, you know, of, the, audit, the, of the audit service. I would imagine small and mid-sized farms would be eager to have more small and mid-sized farms get the certification because then it becomes sort of uh, a natural way for schools and organizations to think of another place where they can get their food. Yes, once you have the certification, then those farms can be aggregated together, um, and then they have economy of scale. So, you know, you have enough tomatoes or you have enough variety of different uh, produce um, so that you can be able to access, say, a supermarket chain or, you know, a school system, you know, or a hospital. Um, it just allows more efficiency and rather than just being individual by yourself. And what we have found is that the farmers really learn from one another um, and the farmers really start learning what they're really good at growing. Um, and like I said, share, you know, just peer learning and sharing. Um, and rather than just the, just the certification, just becoming a certificate, a, cert a one-time, you know, event, we want it to become part of their farm, part of their lifestyle so that they're doing and implementing this daily and it just becomes routine, but yet it's not so cumbersome and so paper, you know, heavy that it um, decreases their, you know, their, their income in their, at their farm level. The Northwest Arkansas has been growing and growing and growing for a few decades now. I'm, so I would imagine there are more mouths to feed, but we also might see less land available for agriculture. Do we know if there are if there are a growing number of farms in northwest Arkansas? Um, I'm not for sure of the, of the data. I do know that we, since we've been here the past two years, especially this year, we have a, a lot of um, new people that are, you know, coming on board, um, you know, either farming part-time or young people that have found, have found some land to lease. Um, and so we I think that once you have, you know, it's like the chicken and the egg, which comes first. I think once you have a place where people can uh, bring their product and have a, a market um, that's expanding, then I do believe that the small and, and mid-sized farms will continue to find a way to grow uh, and be a part of that, whether it's full-time, part-time. Um, I, I do believe that, you know, they will, you know, if, if there's a need and there's a market and the customers, the consumers, you know, support them and purchase the product, then, you know, they will, the farmers will always meet the demand. Diana Endicott is the director of the Food Conservancy in Springdale. She says small and mid-sized farms interested in the Group Good Agricultural Practices certification can find out more information and find ways to contact the Food Conservancy at foodconservancy.org. And speaking of collaboration, Dozens of artists from Northwest Arkansas are together in the first ever 
Regional Visual Arts Exhibition at Walton Arts Center. We'll learn more just ahead on this Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. Hi, my name is Paul, your host for the Generic Blue Show, which airs every Friday night at 9 o'clock. Join me this Friday. We've got some Fabrizio Grassi and the Soul Garage Experience, Samantha Fish, Seth Lee Jones, and about a 10-year-old CD project that John Davies produced and arranged. It's called The Smittles. That and more this Friday night at 9 o'clock, the Generic Blues Show. We'll see you then. This is Ozarks at Large. This season is the 30th for the Walton Arts Center, and there are the expected offerings, a Broadway season, musicians, the 10 by 10 series, allowing patrons to explore unique acts for just $10, series for children, and the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas concerts. But this year, for the very first time, the Walton Arts Center is hosting a regional visual arts exhibition. The call to artists of any experience level in any medium went out this summer. And this fall, we see the works that were accepted, and what a variety, pottery, watercolor, sculpture, photography, and more from 64 different artists with 73 different pieces out of 135 submissions. This week, Kathy Thompson, the exhibition's director and curator, and Jason Smith, executive assistant at Walton Art Center, offered a quick guide through the Joy Pratt Markham Gallery for our art, our region, our time. More than anything, I think we just chose what we thought would be right had nothing to do with anything else. Would you agree with that? Oh, completely. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. completely. It wasn't it was about the individual work. It mm-hmm. was you would look at every piece as it was put in front of you and it was like a yes or a no. Mm-hmm. And we all end up having such <laughs> almost the exact same stack. There would of, be occasion, an occasional discussion. Yeah. Three-dimensional, two-dimensional, uh, abstract, incredibly realistic photography. What was the challenge in putting this gallery together with so big a variety? It was a big one. <laughs> First of all, it's an enormous amount of artwork. Yes. Um, and it we started off, Jason ran off you know, eight by tens of each piece that we had chosen because we didn't have the artwork yet. So one day we just got in here and we were just going to kind of, you know, check it out a little bit. And then and then all of a sudden we had these pieces in the tape and we were just going around taking them up all over the wall. It was so insane. It was really so insane. It was a good day. So, it was a good day. And then we just walked away and said, oh, my gosh, look. We hung the whole show. And then that was really insane because that did not happen. We came in and ripped them off and moved them. And we did that with the paper probably three times or more. So then the next thing was to get the real artwork in here. And then we did the same thing, except we just had the pieces to lean up against the wall. And we literally did that. Over and over and over again. And each one of us, Jason and Tom, Tom would come in sometimes late in the evening, and you'd walk in the next morning and go, wait a minute, where did that go? That's moved, and he would have moved them. And Jason did the same thing, and we just worked and worked and worked it out together. What I love about this is I recognize some of these artists' names are people who have been creating for a few decades and, and well-known here and elsewhere. Others are names I've never heard of. There's a good reason for that. There is a good reason for that. Um, we, we set out an open call, and we were trying to get a picture of what 
visual art and what working artists were creating now. In our area. Let's see. What have we got? And, and I mean, and, yeah, no, we totally. And with that, you get, you know, we made sure that we didn't have a, um, a cost barrier, so there was no fee to enter. Um, we made sure right up at the very first, there was, you know, um, a non-discrimination policy that was made very apparent in the process so that if anybody might not feel like this is the right opportunity for them, we were hoping that that would keep, remo remove that barrier. And it really did help. I mean, so we've got some brand new artists that had never done art who are exceptionally talented that submitted things, you know, from their early stages of their career. And then we have artists who have been doing work for 40 years that have pieces in this show. So you have some artists here who are exhibiting for the first time? Yes, we do. And that was really shocking. And uh, I think what happened, we didn't even think about this when I didn't anyway, maybe Jason did. But when you have a show like this, you set up parameters like years that ha the work has to be done and finished. So it just so happened, guess what? It was during COVID. And we didn't even realize that until we got the very first uh, artist, the two little pieces over here. She, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think this is the gist of it. She was so upset about COVID. She just didn't know how to deal with COVID. And all she could think about was stitching, like keeping things stitched together. So her work over there is old photographs that are stitched on top of. And they are absolutely fabulous. When Jason and I saw those two pieces, we just said, we're going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah when we, we were like, okay, if this is any indication of what we're going to yes. receive, this is, we're, we're fine. I think what it says is that anyone can make art if you want to and if you don't want to, and it's okay, you know, and that you should not have any kind of um, preconceived ideas. Yeah, the definition of art is very specific yes. to the person. Yes. So, I mean, you look at each of these pieces, they see art differently. It and that age-old question of what is art? It's, you know, it's, it could be asked in here in many different ways, don't you think? Yeah, and we, we really, I think that was part of our selection process was we wanted to include as much um, diversity in the art as possible. Jason Howell-Smith is executive assistant at Walton Art Center. We also heard from Kathy Thompson, the curator for the Our Art, Our Region, Our Time exhibit at Walton Art Center. The exhibit will last through November 5th. The Joy Pratt Markham Gallery is open Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., also open when the box office at Walton Art Center is open and opens one hour before each performance inside the venue and will be open during intermissions. All patrons entering the building are required to wear a mask, and if it's before a show, you are required to bring proof of vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test from the previous 72-hour window. In the background is John Batiste playing piano off of his CD, Anatomy of Angels. And I'm Robert Ginsberg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from John Batiste as well as Michael Brecker, Peter Martin, Clark Gibson, Tommy Flanagan, and much more. Join me for Shades of Jazz every Friday and Saturday right here on KUAF 91.3 FM. Shades of Jazz with Robert Ginsberg every Friday night. 
from 10 until midnight on KUAF 91.3, and then Saturdays from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3, available on your HD radio in your car or at home. Monday on Ozarks at Large, University of Arkansas professor Marty Matlock is taking a leave of absence to assist the USDA in building a more resilient food system in the United States. We have a national security interest in ensuring that we have the capacity to produce our own food. That story from Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich on the Monday edition of Ozarks at Large, heard at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. And you can always stream KUAF for free through the KUAF app, through KUAF.com, or by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. This is KUAF 91.3, and you can listen to KUAF anytime, anywhere with the KUAF app. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors this Friday included Matthew Moore, Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics, and Becca Martin-Brown, the Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Our thanks to Rhonda Dillard, KUAF's Underwriting Director, for her help today. Speaking of help, additional content for this edition of Ozarks at Large provided by our colleagues at KUAR Public Radio in Little Rock. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Daryl can often be found performing live and sometimes taking requests on his Facebook and Instagram feeds. You can find out more about Daryl wherever you find out more about music online. We will return Sunday morning at 9 o'clock with Weekend Ozarks at Large. And, of course, we'll start a brand new week of new daily shows Monday at noon and 7. You can find out much more about us and hear past editions of our show at OzarksAtLarge.com. Thanks so much for being with us. Please have a safe safe weekend. We will get together again very soon. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums.